Well, what a perfect song to end on as we head into this new book and this new series. Really, that song is echoing the overview of First Peter. When I picked this book back in November, I had, I mean, I know we were living in chaos in 2020, but I had no idea how prudent this book would really become as 2021 has unfolded. Um, uh, this should have been in your mailbox last week. Um, this is our good old friends at the Bible Project. We used them a couple of years ago to read through the Word, and, and they had all these little overviews of books and videos and these, these outlines. Uh, these are phenomenal, phenomenal resources to understanding of books of the Bible. Uh, there's going to be a few things I literally take from it today, uh, like our title, Hopes, I mean, I, wrote, I, I titled Hope in the Midst of Chaos as a, this title for First Peter. They had Hope in the Midst of Suffering. Uh, but these two things up here, we're going to read here in a few minutes as well. Uh, but I encourage you, if you didn't get one of these, check it out. Grab, check for your mailbox. There's, again, some more out there just as you read through this book. Um, also, I think Friday we sent out an email with the video link to this overview. I'd encourage you to watch it. Um, I didn't want to watch it this morning because it's like literally 10 minutes long. Um, and I didn't want to give up 10 minutes of preaching time. Um, and I knew that you guys would like to go home at some point in time. Uh, so we sent out an email. If you didn't get it or you don't get emails, you can go to YouTube, go to the Bible Project page and look for it. It's the overview on First Peter. Or you can go to their website um, and all the videos are there as well. But it's again, these, those videos are just phenomenal outlines of books um, and great, great resources um, and so there will be some aspects that, that I touch on. There will be some aspects, obviously, that I don't touch on. Um, but it's just a great, great resource. And so, yeah, this morning we're going to start First Peter. Uh, we'll probably be in this book about somewhere between nine and ten weeks. Uh, we'll finish it up right, right around the time of Easter. Easter is really early this year. Uh, Easter is actually April 4th. Um, and Monday, Thursday is April Fool's Day, and it's not a fool. It is actually Monday, Thursday. Uh, so we will uh, be looking forward to that. Uh, so we should finish this up in mid-March, and then we'll have a couple weeks as we head into Easter to look at the Easter story and then celebrate Easter as well. Um, so yeah, Easter is super, super early this year. And I forget how they figure all that out, but it doesn't matter. The calendar said it's April 4th, so we'll go with April 4th. So um, anyway, so we're looking at First Peter, and just I know some of you guys like history and like a little bit of overview, so these first... First couple of things, there's blanks, there's notes there in your bulletin this week, and hopefully next week we'll have them up on the screen. Uh, but just a few different things. Um, this book was written by Peter, uh, who, as you remember, was originally named Simon. Uh, he was rena- renamed Caiaphas, or Peter by Christ. And so when Peter called Simon, the fisherman, he said, I'm giving you a new name. It's Caiaphas, which is translated to Peter, which literally means rock. Um, and as we see later on in scriptures in the New Testament, uh, as you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, um, he says, Peter, I'm going to build the church on you. Um, so on this rock, I will build the church. And, and Peter really became one of the, the key leaders in the early church. Um, this book was uh, I mean, so he was one of the first disciples and he was a key leader in the early church. Um, if you've looked through Acts and I know on Wednesday nights we've been looking through Acts, uh, he was one of the first disciples to give a sermon. He gave this sermon the day of Pentecost. He was a key leader. He eventually had to flee uh, Jerusalem. And when he fleed Jerusalem, he spent some time in some different other places, eventually ended up in Rome, which is where this book was written from. Uh, Most likely, Peter was one of the first 
bishops, so to say, of the early church in Rome. A lot of people call him that. I don't know if that title was actually used back then, but he would have been a key leader um, in the in the Roman church or the Christian church in Rome. Uh, and this book was written from Rome while Peter was in Rome towards the end of his life to the persecuted Christians all over Asia Minor. So those are those first few blanks. Simon's name was Caiaphas. He was a key leader. The book was written from Rome to churches all over Asia Minor. And so the church was being persecuted. They were not understanding. They were frustrated. They're like, why isn't Jesus coming back? Uh, Rome was a horrible uh, government to live under. The persecution was becoming more and more intense by the day. Obviously, if you've heard church history, Peter and um, Paul were eventually killed by Nero, who was persecuting the early church. Um, and so this book was written to be hope in the midst of the suffering, the midst of this chaos, uh, the midst of everything that was going on. And Peter wanted to give the church hope that was spread out, uh, not necessarily in exile, but, but he's going to touch on that in these first few verses. But it was spread out over Asia Minor. And again, and it's right here on this paper, and I just want to read these two things to you. I put them in my notes to specifically read it, and it's on this piece of paper. So I didn't come up with this on my own, but it's the same, the same themes. It's in the, in the study Bible, the same themes. It's in commentary. But basically, Peter wrote this to be hope in the midst of suffering, in the midst of chaos. He wanted them to understand God's people are, are a misunderstood minority, living under the rule of a different king. And so Peter was encouraging the church, look, you live under these different rules. You have a different king. You're a part of a different government. You're a part of something else. You're going to be misunderstood. You always will be misunderstood. That has not changed 2,000 years later. We as a church and Christians are a misunderstood minority. And then persecution offers a church to show others the generous love of Jesus. And so even in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of persecution, they can show the love and the generosity of Christ as we will see as we walk through 1 Peter, especially in verse chapters 2, 3, and, and 4. Um, and so again, those were things that are taken right from this overview that we're going to be touching on over the next few weeks. So that's a quick overview of 1 Peter. Obviously, there's a whole lot more there that we could have talked about, and I encourage you guys to check out that video and just kind of get a recap of this book. So to dive in, hopefully you've already turned there. If you didn't figure it out, we're in First Peter. Um, if you're in a study Bible, it's well, mine is 2405. Um, but anyway, First Peter, chapter one, verse one. Peter, again written by Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, a word I can't pronounce, Asia and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the spirits for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And so, again, we've already touched on this things. Peter wrote it. He's an apostle. He's an early church leader. He tells you where it's going. It's going to the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. All those different regions were all in Asia Minor. But I want to key in on these, this, these two words that he starts off with. He says, to those who are the elect exiles. Peter uses that term on purpose, very purposefully. He, he wants people to know who this book is for and who is included in God's family. And again, throughout the whole book, he's going to be reminding us that when you become a Christian, you become a part of this new family. You are now an elect person. Because you were chosen by God and you chose God, so you've become this elect person. But you're also this exile. You don't have a home. You don't have a nationality. You don't have a place to say, this is where I belong because we do not belong here. And so he uses this term, elect exile. And he's playing on the Jewish Old Testament 
The idea of Israel being the elect people of God and coming out of exile from Egypt into Israel. But he's also talking to the Gentiles as well. He's basically letting everybody know that we're in the same family. And so, again, in your notes, I, I said in Peter's greetings, he very specifically used the term elect exiles. And so exile, if you've never looked it up, if you don't know what that word means, it means to be expelled from one's native country. And so as Christians, we are exiled. Our native country is heaven. It's with God. It would have been the Garden of Eden. And if you remember, going all the way back to Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? They got kicked out. Adam and Eve were living with God, in God's garden, in God's presence, in communion with God, and they were exiled. They were removed from Eden. There was an angel put there with the sword. They were no longer allowed to return. And until God returns, we as Christians, we as God's people, are living in exile. So an exile means to be expelled from one's native country. And so we see that happen early in Genesis. And from then, really, God's people are a nomadic people. We, we move around. We go different places. We go and spread the gospel. If you look throughout the Bible, God's people were constantly nomadic. They had this brief little period of time where they lived in Israel under Joshua and then some rulers and obviously David and Solomon and the kings. But for most of the history, most of the world, most of the time of God's people in the church, they were nomadic. They were living under slavery. They were living on the move. They were in exile. Very rarely did they stay put. And that's exactly what we see in the New Testament. The church is everywhere. We don't really have a home because we're in exile from our home and we're constantly nomadic and constantly moving. So he's using that word to remind them they're not literally exiles. and Like they weren't literally exiled from Asia Minor where they were living. But as God's people, they were in exile because they're, no, they're not in heaven. So as believers, we're in exile. We should long for our true home. We should long for our true world and for that end time inheritance, which he's going to talk about here in verses 3 and 4. So as we live in 2021, we're like Israel. We're in exile, not conforming to the values or world views around us, but we're longing to be home. And so we have to be careful that we, the church, and we as individuals are not conforming to the values and the worldviews, but we're constantly conforming to the Bible, longing to be home. And what does the Bible say? Then you have this word elect, right? Which literally means chosen. Elect means chosen. And again, throughout scriptures, we see God chose all of mankind if we choose him. God says, look, I want to save the world. I came to save the world, right? For God so loved the world that his only begotten son was sent to save them, John 3, 16. He loved the world. He sent his son to, I know that was a very prayer phrase version of John 3, 16. Sorry about that. But God chose mankind. He wanted to save mankind. And everyone is able to make that choice. He, he allows it for everyone. Now, granted, some people don't choose God. Some people choose the way of the world. And that gets really confusing because God already knows what you're going to choose and what you're going to do. And so you have that whole argument and conversation where you're chosen, where you're elect, where you're not chosen. But I believe Scripture teaches that God chose to save mankind. But he gives us a decision. He gives us a choice. And in that choice, no matter what I choose, what you choose, if I choose God, God will use that. If I choose the world, God's going to use that too. Because God already knows our choice. But when he says, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his son, it didn't say God only loved Israel. It didn't say God only loved the Gentiles. It didn't say God only loved black people or white people or Latino people. It said God loved the world. And so the intention was to save all of creation, all of mankind. And so believers, 
we become a part of this chosen people. So just like in the Old Testament, just like with Israel, we become this elect. We become this chosen because we chose to obey God. We chose to answer God's call. We chose to humble ourselves and say, God, I need you in my life. I want you in my life. I want to be part of this body. Then we become this elect exiles, this elect chosen. And so we, by default, are adopted into this family of God because we chose God. And so Peter is clarifying in the elect exiles, this is everyone. In this term, Peter is clarifying Jews and Gentiles are now a part of the family of God. And that's key. That's huge. I know a lot of you know that. You're like, Mike, you say that all the time. But it's so important still today. Because as you build relationships with non-believers, as you build relationships with people seeking, what is the number one thing you generally hear? God doesn't love me. God would never accept me. I'm not good enough. God, if you knew what I have done, God would reject me and so would you. I mean, I've heard those hundreds of times. People believing they're not good enough. People believing that God would never love them. People believing that God would never accept them. And so understanding that as these chosen people, we become that. That's just as important message as it is today. Because it's important for us. We're not dealing with the Jew and Gentile concept here. Because we live in America and we, we don't really hang out with a whole lot of Jewish people. But we're dealing with Gentiles who believe that they're not good enough. Who believe they can't be chosen. Who believe they can't be elect. Who believe that God would never love them. And so this, this concept is just as important to say, no, look, God loves everybody. God chose everybody. It doesn't matter your past. Man, let me show you some characters in the Bible that had some salty passes. Some crazy passes. Pass, sorry, not passes. Pass. And God still loved them. God still chose them. Even some of his own disciples had some hairy past. past. Paul being obviously the greatest example. And so Peter perfectly, purposefully uses that example to let us still today know that everybody becomes a part of God's family. It's not just the kids, people that were born in Christian homes. It's not just a certain nation. It's not just a certain background. It's not just a certain ethnic group. But the family of God is every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that's why he uses this term, elect exiles. Letting us know that we're not home yet. We're still longing for a home. But we are chosen by God. And right there, that, I mean, that just brings some peace to me. God loves me because I know my past. I know what I've done. I know the things I've said, the things I've thought, the things I've acted upon, and yet God still loves me. And that, that's hope for other people who believe that God can't love them because of their past. And again, I've, I've heard that a lot, and I'm sure some of you have as well. So that's that, that, that first, very first sentence in the Bible. Then going on, it says, according, or verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but like a lot of times I take notes throughout the year or my, I, I don't journal as much as my wife, but I do journal some. I, I do record things. And I had a conversation with a pastor literally almost a year ago. It's a pastor in our community in Harrisonville. We used to meet for coffee and, and we haven't as much anymore. Uh, but we had this conversation. And when I got done with the conversation, I wanted to record a few things that he said that really stood out to me. And the other day I was, I was going through my voice memos trying to figure out what I should delete and what was important and what was there. And it just said, thoughts from Dan. And I was like, what? 
So I listened to it, and this whole conversation totally came back to me. And one of the things he reminded me of is that sometimes we, the church, forget that new people walk in the doors and don't know what we're talking about. And so there's going to be a few times this morning where I'm going to explain a word, and maybe you knew what it meant your whole life. But as the church, we have this ongoing story, right? It's this ongoing conversation that a lot of us are a part of, a lot of us understand. But then we invite people in, and it's like they're, they're picking up the book in the middle of the book, and they have no idea what we're talking about. I mean, for any of you who love to read, imagine trying to pick up a book, and it's, it's 35 chapters, and you pick it up and start reading in chapter 20. Man, you'd be frustrated. Like, who are these characters? What is going on? What's happening? And we do that sometimes. And so this word sanctification is one of those words. I'm going to be honest. Until I was in my 20s, I had no idea what sanctification meant. Like, pastors would get up front and say it all the time. Like, hey, I've been sanctified, and aren't you sanctified? Like, what's sanctified? I have no idea. And maybe that's just my ignorance. Maybe I should have asked somebody. But I was scared because I lived in a Christian home. I went to a Christian school. How could I not know what sanctified meant? So I didn't want to ask my parents and be like the ignorant kid that didn't know what sanctified meant. So I just played along like I knew what that meant. So I was in my 20s and I actually figured out what sanctified meant. Sanctification means simply to make something holy. To make something holy. And so Peter is again reminding us we didn't make ourselves holy. We did absolutely nothing. We are here. We are these elect exiles. We are this elect chosen because of God and God alone. He said, therefore, the knowledge of God and the sanctification of the spirit for the obedience of Jesus Christ by the sprinkling of his blood. In other words, the only thing that made us holy was the cross that you can't see, but it's over there. That cross, Jesus going in obedience and dying on that cross, his blood being shed, that sprinkling of the blood, just like the image of the sprinkling of the blood of the lamb in the Old Testament. Jesus' blood was sprinkled. It gushed. It went out. It was on that cross because he was obedient. And through the Holy Spirit and Jesus' obedience, we are made holy. It's that simple. I can never be holy on my own. I will never be holy on my own. I cannot ever be good enough. And so sanctification simply means to make holy. And so as we walk through First Peter, there's some words like that. I want to make sure that I define them because I realize that not everyone knows what these words mean. Sometimes myself included. Or we assume we know what these words mean. So verse 2, he's reminding us that we became elect exiles, what? By Jesus making us holy, by his spirit living in us, by Christ's obedience, and then our obedience to his invitation, and by the confession that we need him, what? By his blood. So Peter's like, look, you can't do this on your own. You will need Jesus. And he's just going to start off with that. We need Jesus. And so by his power and life, and our role of humbly confessing it, we can become holy eventually. So that's, that's those first two, verse, two verses. There's a lot there in the first two verses. And again, we're not catching all of it. I encourage you to continue to study this and look at this. I, I'm simply grazing it because if we, we could spend a, just a week on that, those two verses alone. Verse 3, though. So then Peter goes into this praise. He goes into this song. He said, born again to a living hope. And I think this is what we definitely need to latch on to, not just this year, but moving forward and teaching this. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's like, blessed is the Lord. Blessed is the Father. Blessed are we because we know the Father. According what? To his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So again, remind us that it's not on our accord. It's nothing that we did. He has caused us 
to be born again to a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just let that sink in for a second. There's a ton in that verse. According to his great mercy, so Jesus' love and mercy and grace for us, Jesus, he has caused us to be born again, so nothing that we did but everything that he did, to a living hope. So we're born again to this living hope. Well, what is this living hope? Well, first off, it starts through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, if Jesus had not rose again, then none of us would be here right now. It'd be pointless. The only reason that we have hope is that Jesus was everything that he said he was. He came and said, I'm the son of God. He came and said, I'm a a prophet. He came and said, he's a priest. He came and said, I'm going to die. And then he did. And he conquered death. And he rose again. And that is the only reason that we can have hope. If Jesus had died and stayed in the grave, there would be no hope. He's the only person who's ever died and rose again and lived forever. Even Lazarus, who died and rose again, eventually died again. Right? Jesus is the only person that can claim humanness, can claim Godship, and he rose and he died again and he went back to heaven and he's still alive today. He's sitting at the right hand of God. Now, obviously, it takes an element of faith to believe that. I mean, you could, we could sit here and argue and go, well, I don't think you're right or I don't believe you. I mean, there is an element of faith. History shows that this man, Jesus, definitely lived and definitely died. And history doesn't know what to do with the fact that he supposedly rose again. There's all kinds of stories out there saying, well, the disciples hit him and they made this up. But, I mean, even history points to this man, Jesus. But our hope, our living hope, is what? And the fact that Jesus Christ is living. He's not dead. He didn't stay dead. He is living. And so, therefore, we have this living hope. So he caused us to be born again. The same concept that Nicodemus could not understand when Nicodemus, the Pharisee, is talking with Jesus, he's like, well, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus says, what? I've got to go back in my mom and be born again? Right? Because that's what that sounds like. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you don't get it, Nicodemus. It's not a physical birth again. It's a spiritual birth again. You have to give up. You have to surrender. You have to let me lead your life. And Nicodemus is like, this does not make any sense. I am 55 years old. I can't go back in mom and come out again. That, that's just weird. But it's this idea that we have to be born again to a living hope. And we have a living hope through him because of his resurrection. So if the resurrection did not happen, everything hinges on the resurrection. And the fact that we can have hope in the midst of chaos and suffering is because of the resurrection. And the resurrection didn't happen, then we might as well pack up our bags, go home, watch NASCAR football, whatever you're going to do this afternoon, and stop coming here altogether. Because without the resurrection, we have no hope. So it's key. So in my Bible, I, I underlined, I highlighted all this, I underlined, he caused us living hope with an equal sign to resurrection. Because the only reason we have resurrection or living hope is because of the resurrection. So again, what do we have this living hope in? What is this living hope for? That's the next verse, right? We have the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Man, and, and Gwen brought this up Wednesday night, and I, I've just been like blown away by this all week. And I was so glad she brought it up. Uh, but it says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So what's our living hope? Well, our living hope is that we have this inheritance. And the inheritance is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're given an inheritance. And there's three key things in here. The inheritance is imperishable. In other words, it will not rot. It will not fade. It will not go away. And I don't know about any of you guys, but how many of you play the what's in the container game from the refrigerator, right? 
about, you know, once a month you have to open the fridge and go, what was this? Or what is this? Hey, kids, we have a science experiment. Or please do not eat this. I mean, maybe that doesn't happen in your house, but it happens in our house. Because things get put in these teeny little containers because Josiah wouldn't just eat that last bite and take it away for us. So it gets put in this teeny little container and then it gets shoved in the back of the fridge and we forget about it. And then like a month later, it's generally me. I get these. I have OCD. I have to clean out the fridge. It drives me nuts, all these containers. So I start opening things and it's just like trash, trash. Hey, this is green. This is red. This is blue. What was this? Right? But we have this inheritance that will never perish. It will never rot. It will never go away. It will be perfect forever. Like, just think about that. Because we don't understand what that's like. Everything we know here rots. It fades. It gets old. It breaks down. Right? I mean, you go and buy a car and they tell you the, the, the car is the worst investment you'll ever make. Why? Because a car breaks down. It devalues the moment you buy it. The moment you drive it off the lot, it devalues 50% or whatever they say. I mean, how many of you have had a car that never broke down? Nobody? We have a car. You've never, oh, you don't have a car. That doesn't count. Lily's like, I don't have a car that broke down. But your parents do, though. There was someone that didn't make it to church this morning because they went out to start their car and neither car would work. They texted me and said, hey, I'm not going to be at church. I, I can't get there. My car's broke. Right? Cars break. Clothes fade. Things wear out. Man, you know, you got that $1 bill that you're like, I'm not even sure if this is still a $1 bill anymore. And it's like taped together and, and it's all faded. And then you get that crisp dollar bill and you're like, wow, this is amazing. Right? Money fades. Money comes and goes. Life is fleeting. Toys break. Cars break. Clothes wear out. You know, we're like, man, I, I've had these pants for 20 years. But eventually they will wear out. Things fade. They perish. So that's the first thing, is our inheritance will never perish. The second is, it's undefiled. In other words, our inheritance is holy. There's nothing evil about it. There's nothing wicked about it. This world is wicked. This world is evil. Anything this world has to offer you eventually will tie back to wickedness and evil, except Christ and this inheritance. It's undefiled. It's the only thing that's holy. This inheritance from God is the only thing that's holy. And it's unfading. It will never fade. It will never lessen. It will never get less. It will never stop working. It will never be dim. You'll always have it. So we have this inheritance that's imperishable. It won't rot. It's holy. It never fades. And here's the best part. And it's kept in heaven for you. So if you're a believer, if you're one of these elect exiles, you've been caused to have a living hope because you're born again from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's an inheritance waiting for you that won't perish, is not defiled, is unfading. In other words, it's the perfect inheritance. It's the best you can ever have. And it's kept in heaven for you. It's waiting for you. It's literally just sitting there waiting for you. And check this out. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation. So not only is it waiting for you in heaven for you to return home to the place that you belong and get it. It's being guarded by God. Like that should get us excited. Right? Like how many of you guys love movies where they're going to steal something, right? Like Ocean's Eleven, you know, Ocean's Twelve, Ocean's Thirteen. It just keeps going and going and going, right? Or what, the Italian job, whatever. There's always this big heist, right? And they're going to break into the impenetrable safe. Man, Mission Impossible. You know, Tom Cruise is like, 
doing this and the sweat's dropping off his face and he catches it with his hand. Like, that doesn't happen. But we like to watch those movies, right? They're always going to break into the place that's unbreakable. And they always win, right? In the movies, they always break in. They always steal whatever they're going to steal. They always do it by the nick of their teeth. The last second, because it's guarded by a system, it's guarded by a computer, it's guarded by man, whatever, whatever it be. But our inheritance is being guarded by God. And last time I checked, and last time I read through the Bible, God never lost. (laughs) He's the winner. If you want to be on the winning team, God is the winning team. He's never failed. He's never lost. Thank you for ever said yay. He's never failed. He's never lost. He's the winner. He's the winning team. And he's guarding your inheritance. He's like, no one will touch this. It is in heaven for this place I have for my children. When they return home, I'm going to hand it to them. And until they get here, I'm going to guard it. That's hope. That is a living hope. That's what we're living for. So our, our inheritance is being guarded by God, God's power being guarded through the faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He said, but of course you can only have it. Our inheritance is guarded by God. So what's the next verse? He says, so you can rejoice in that. Right now, granted, you have to have salvation to get this inheritance. If you don't believe in God, there is no inheritance. If you believe God doesn't exist, there's no inheritance. So there is a key component of salvation um, I, I figured we all knew that, but just in case you didn't, no, you do need salvation. You do need faith in God to get this inheritance. He says, in this you rejoice. Peter's like, the world is chaotic. The world is suffering. The world around you does not make sense. The Roman Empire does not make sense. But it's okay, because you don't have to rejoice in the world. You rejoice in the fact that you've been born again. You have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's an inheritance for you that can't be touched and it's being guarded by God. That's what you rejoice in. And that is what Peter is telling the church. He says, even though for now, a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. In other words, life's going to happen. Trials are going to be happened. He said, but what are you rejoicing in? Where are you finding your rejoicing? He goes, yes, life will be difficult. You will grieve. You will cry. There'll be trials. There'll be things you don't understand that don't make sense. But that's not what you rejoice in. You rejoice in what's going on up there. He says, so the test genuineness of your faith which is more precious than gold that perishes through though it is tested by fire may be found in result to the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of jesus christ he says you you rejoice in the fact that you have faith you found the one thing in life that the world can't take from you you found the one thing in life that is your inheritance you found the one thing in life that will never rot and is being guarded by god your faith He's like, and that's what you rejoice in. And in fact, he says, your faith is more precious than gold. Gold perishes. Gold can eventually be burnt up in a hot enough fire. Silver perishes. Anything on earth perishes. But he says, your faith, although it may be tested, although you may have trials, it will survive the fire. It will survive anything that will perish. Why? Because there's a result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation, revelation of Jesus Christ. Your faith is seen to be true and holy and good. And God sees that. And in the end, when there's this praise and this honor and the glory, when Jesus reveals himself for who he really is, when Jesus comes back and says, here's who I am, world, 
I wasn't lying. I was telling the truth. I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We know, Revelation says, that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. No matter where they're going to end up, no matter what their inheritance is, every single knee and tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He wins. He wins. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so he's, he lets us know that the last blank, sorry, in your notes, as we face, face trials, it's going to deepen your faith, right? As we face trials and we walk through trials, it will deepen your faith because ultimately we, we belong to Christ. We ultimately belong to Christ. And it will deepen your faith. And these last few verses, we're just going to kind of plow through them. And again, we can spend more time here, but for, for time's sake, we're not. He says, concerning this salvation. So he, he tells us all the things we have hope for, our inheritance, what's going on, why we can trust in that, why we have faith in that. It'll be tested, but it's okay because it'll deepen your faith. It'll come through in the end. And though you don't see him, you will love him. And though, though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice in this. Even though we don't see God, we don't, like, I, he's not standing right here. I mean, he is here. He's all around us in his presence, but we cannot physically see it. He's like, but you will be filled with that glory. You will obtain that outcome in the end because of the salvation of your souls. Then he reminds us of the goal. He reminds us, the early church, what's going on. He says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be, your search and inquired carefully. Man, you realize that Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and all these prophets, they didn't understand what this was about. They prophesied. They faithfully gave the word. They faithfully gave the message. But they did not get it. They hadn't seen it. They hadn't tasted it. I mean, Daniel and Ezekiel got little glimpses of heaven in their visions. But these guys were prophesying for something that they did not understand. Why? Because they were according to the person or time of the spirit of Jesus in them was indicated when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. God will let the prophets know, this is a time that's coming. You guys are not going to see this. You guys are not going to fully understand it. But I'm sending a Messiah. He's going to have to suffer and die to save the people, which I'm sure made no sense to the prophets. Why would the Son of God have to suffer and die? Why couldn't he just conquer? Why couldn't he just rule? What was the point? But he, kept, he told the prophets, he goes, look, I'm revealing this to you so that you can write it down because you're not serving yourselves. You're serving them. That message hasn't changed, guys. We don't serve ourselves. We serve God, so we're serving the world. Our job is to go out and tell the world this exact same truth. Not only the world today, but the world that to come, right? We don't serve ourselves. We serve the mission. What's the mission? To go and make disciples. To tell people the truth. To tell people why they can have hope. The mission is to make disciples. And so the same way the prophets did exactly what they were supposed to do, even though they didn't fully understand it, even though they were longing for it to come, waiting for it to come, they still obeyed. Because they were not serving themselves, but you, us. And Peter ends this with, And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So Peter's going, look, these guys were obedient. These guys preached it even though they didn't see it. They didn't understand it. They didn't get it. How much more can you preach it? He's like, you're living it. You've seen it. You have all of the text. You have the Holy Spirit. The things that they longed for, the things that they were waiting for, they've happened. And so this early church specifically, he's like, go out and tell. Now granted, we're 2,000 years in the fast forward, so you're like, well, Mike, you're telling me it happened. 
Well, again, it's that element of faith, but all of Scripture said it happened. History says it happens. And Peter's saying, look, the very thing that these prophets longed for and wanted to see, they did it because they cared about you. They did it because they were obedient to God's mission. They did it because God's mission was number one. And the same is true of us. God's mission should be number one. We are to go and make disciples. And so we share these things that we have seen, that we have heard, that we've preached about because we have the good news and because the Holy Spirit lives in us. And we go out and we tell others because we don't serve ourselves. And we tell those that are to come, the children that are not even yet born, that need to know the good news of the gospel. And it starts right here, right now. These are the very things that the angels long to see. So Peter is letting us know that there's hope in the midst of chaos. Why? Because we have the truth. The rock that built the church, the church was built on the rock. The cornerstone, Psalms says. Jesus was the cornerstone. He was the rock. He gave the blueprints. He gave the architecture. He let us know how to live. And Peter's like, it doesn't matter what's going on around you. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be chaos. The world will be the world because the world is sinful. And it's okay because you don't belong here. You're longing to go home. You have an inheritance that can't be touched. It can't rot. It can't perish. It's being guarded by God. It's because of your salvation. It's because of your faith. And so for that very reason, just like the prophets, you need to go out and tell people the good news. Tell people why you can have hope in 2020 or 2021 or whatever year it might be, 2030, 2040, you never stop having hope because the thing that we have hope in never perishes and never fades and it's holy because it's the very person of Jesus Christ. So that's the overview of these first few verses, what Peter's letting them know what he's going to encourage them for and then he's going to continue on to encourage them. How are you to be holy? How do you live as a holy people? And going on and on, this new family, this new identity, uh, we're going to suffer. And how do we do that? And even talks about marriage in this chapter or this book and a few other things. So that's what we have to look forward to. So ultimately, the, the challenge we're left with today is where's our hope? What's our hope in? Are we willing to go out and tell people where our hope is in? Do we believe in our inheritance? Do we believe everything that this says? Do we believe it's guarded? Or are we still wrestling and struggling with that? We're all a part of the kingdom of God, whether Jew or Gentile. We all have the hope because the hope is in the very person of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that You knew, you knew what we would need 50 years after Christ and you knew what we would need 2,000 years after Christ. And the encouragement that, that Peter wrote to the early church is a perfect translation and encouragement for what we need today. God, our world is sinful, it's broken, it's fallen, it's in chaos. And it has been. And Lord, you're, you're reminding us through Peter's word, don't put your hope in the things of this world. Man, they perish, they rot, they fade away. Put your hope in me. Hold on to your salvation. Hold on to your faith. Know that you have this inheritance that is forever and I'm guarding it for you. But in the meantime, I, I need you to finish the work. I need you to finish the mission. I need you to go and make disciples and tell people you're on mission, church. You're on mission. And no matter what's going on, don't lose sight of the mission. Remain held on to the hope and the truth 
Don't let the world views and the world values distort that. Lord, that, that message is perfect for where exactly where we are today. And we thank you that you designed it that way. We thank you that you worked that way, that the words of Peter to the early church, we can still apply to our lives today. And so, Lord, help us this week to rejoice in the right things, to hold on to the hope of the right things, and to share that hope with others. And, Lord, if we're struggling with that, if we're struggling with what we believe, if we're struggling with what we rejoice in, where our hope is, Lord, help each one of us individually take time this week to, to wrestle through those and ask those questions, to seek you and to become solidified with who you are as the person of God. God, I thank you for this encouragement, and I thank you for this hope that we can hold on to. And Lord, we give this to you and help us to live it out each and every day, this week and the next and the next, until you call us home. In your precious name we pray. Amen.